We may now turn to the Word of God, to the portion read in the Epistle to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, and we may read uh, from the beginning of the chapter. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And may the Lord again add his blessing to this uh, short reading of his word. And the words that we want to focus particularly upon are the words of the first verse. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. And you can see immediately that the apostle is drawing attention to the condition of these Ephesians. You hath he quickened who were dead, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. That was the condition that they were in when Paul came among them with the gospel. They were dead in trespasses and in sins. But then also the apostle refers to the great change that they had experienced. Though they were dead in trespasses and sins, Paul is able to say, You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. They experienced the mighty quickening power of God, and it changed them radically. It changed them entirely. They became new creatures in Christ Jesus. And you can see the connection between what Paul writes here and what he writes in the previous chapter. He is praying for them that the eyes of their understanding, in verse 18, being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now, if these are quickened, then they're already enlightened. But the apostle is praying that they might get more light, that they might progress in their understanding of this. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward? And perhaps these Ephesians, if we know anything of the city of Ephesus, 
and the idolatrous practices and the immorality of that great famous city, then they must learn and know what a power it was that changed us. We were so steeped in sin. We were so devoted to our religion and our philosophy. We were so ensnared by it. We were so chained to it. It has to be a mighty power that has quickened us. And of course, being dead, it has to be a mighty power. This is not some medical attention given to people who are sick that they might recover. This is a mighty power that has quickened them from deadness. And the apostle wants them to understand it more and more, to enter into it so that they might have reason to praise God and honor God because of what he has done. And of course, in chapter 2 here, the apostle gives the reason for it. Uh, We read in verse 4, God, who is rich in mercy. Note the connection here. God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins. Even when we were dead. You Ephesians were dead (coughs) in trespasses and in sins. You didn't know God. You were alienated from God. He actually loved you and you didn't even know it. What an amazing thought that is. He is rich in mercy. For his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Note, note. Uh, what we read, the mercy, rich in mercy, great love, grace. Mercy, love, grace. Three (coughs) outstanding words in the whole scheme of redemption. And that's what the apostle wants these Ephesians to understand more and more, to enter into it more and more. The mercy that they've experienced the love they've experienced, the grace that they have experienced. But here he deals with their past and their present. You hath he quickened who were dead, but now (coughs) you're saved. You've been quickened, and that means you're saved. You are saved because you've been quickened. No one can be saved without quickening. And no one will be quickened and eventually lost. It's impossible. Those who are saved are quickened. That's the reason they're saved. And those who are quickened, they are saved. And those who are saved are those who have been quickened. And notice the connection between the concluding verses in chapter 1. 
When Paul is speaking of the mighty power of God and the working of that power, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And, you see the connection. He's talking about the power of God, the quickening power of God. What kind of power is it? Verse 19. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us word? What is the power of God like? How extensive is it? The power of God that brought the universe into, into existence. The power of God that sustains every planet in its place. The power of God that is exercised every moment, keeping everything as God purposes it to be. The power of God. You read through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and you see over and over and over again demonstrations of God's mighty power. Now, this is the power (coughs) that the apostle is here speaking about. And it was, he says, wrought through Christ toward us. God concentrating his mighty power upon those who are dead in trespasses and in sins. When we go back to the Old Testament, to the prophecy of Ezekiel, we have there in the uh, prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 37, prophetically what God intended to do by way of restoring his people. And uh, the prophet is directed to go to a particular place. He's carried forth in the spirit to a valley. And when he looks in that valley, the scene is one of total devastation. Death reigns entirely over it. We're told in Ezekiel 37, (coughs) the hand of the Lord, verse 1, was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley which was full of bones. It wasn't a very pleasant scene. It wasn't somewhere that you would naturally want to stay in too long. But this is where God sends the prophet because he wants to teach the prophet about his mighty power. He wants the prophet to be persuaded and convinced of what his power can accomplish. And uh, so often we put limits upon the power of God. We don't expect him to do very much. We don't really require him to do very much. 
But this is what God teaches the prophet. Verse 2. He caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. Because this please has experienced slaughter and death, and it has happened some time ago, and the place is full of bones that are parched in the sun. Death has reigned here for some time, full of dead bones, and the bones are so scattered that it's a clear indication death has reigned here for a long time. There's no life here for any any time. It's been a place where death reigned. And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? <coughs> what a question to be asked. Can these bones live? Is it possible? Do you believe Ezekiel in miracles? Do you really believe that I have the power to bring life into these dead bones? And what did Ezekiel say? I answered, O Lord, thou knowest. Thou knowest. Can these bones live? Ezekiel knew he couldn't make them live, no matter how hard he tried. And he said to God, thou knowest. It was as though he was almost afraid to answer. And he said unto me, prophecy upon these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. He wasn't saying, O dead men of Israel, but dead bones. He's speaking to bones that seemed ridiculous. It seemed just something totally outrageous. Nonsensical. But God is requiring the prophet to exercise faith and he is told to prophesy and to tell these bones to hear. Well, how were they going to hear anything if they're dead? How were they even going to understand anything? But you can see, God can address the dead, as only God can do. He was speaking through Ezekiel, but through him he was actually speaking to the dead. And he was calling upon the dead to hear. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, this is Ezekiel speaking, Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you into you, and ye shall live. Only God could say that. Only God could possibly say such a thing. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones. Just look at them. They're scattered one from the other. They're as dead, as dead it is, as it is possible to be. There's absolutely not the faintest sign of life. And yet God says, 
to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will bring up flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. How will you know that I am the Lord? Because you will know. No one else but God could do it. No one else but God could possibly do this. And you see, that's what Paul wants the Ephesians to know. You were dead, absolutely, completely, unquestionably dead. That was your condition. As dead as these bones here in this valley. Now, of course, uh, the prophet isn't afraid now to speak because he's heard God speak. Whenever the question was asked, can these bones live? Well, Ezekiel said, thou knowest. I don't know. Only God knows. So he said then to him, well, you prophesy, you speak to these bones, but you Tell them what I'm saying, not what you think. But tell them what I'm thinking. Tell them what I'm saying. Tell them what I can do and what I purpose to do. And then I prophesied as I was commanded. Remember what we were saying earlier today, the first qualification for the early disciples was obedience. Uh, Just like these prophets. They were sometimes required to do strange things, but they were doing what God required them to do. And so Ezekiel does it. (coughs) I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and behold a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to his bone. Something is happening, and it's God's doing. But you will see there was a process here. They just didn't suddenly live. There was a process. And God was drawing bone to bone. There was a formation of shape. The bodies were being formed. Bones were coming to their bones. But... uh, we read, verse 8, Behold, then sinews and flesh came up upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. That's not what God said he was going to do. He said, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. This is what the prophet has to tell these bones. And now you can see a rapid change, a miraculous change. Only God could have performed this, but this is what we have to understand. This is important, but there was no breath in them. There was a great transformation. There was a miraculous change. 
but there was no breath in them. There was no life there. And you see, we have to understand in our day that sometimes people are content and they're satisfied with outward changes, with some degree of alteration to circumstances. And they might even think, well, God wrought this change. There can be great changes without life. We should never forget that. And we have to be concerned, and this is what Paul's concerned about. You hath he quickened who were dead. It's not a matter of just a change. It's not a matter of just some outward reformation. You hath he quickened. He put life into you. It wasn't just an outward reformation. It was a change of life. And that's something every one of us should be concerned about. Is there life in my soul? Or have I just been satisfied with some outward reformation of manners? Some external change? My life is different. My experience is different. Here, mighty things happened, but there was no breath in them. But that's not what God said he was going to do. I'll bring bone to bone. I'll cover them with flesh, and it will look very real. And you will see the individual uh, people that have been lying scattered and dead. You'll be able to identify them. And you'll be able to see there's something miraculous has happened here. But there was no breath in them. And God said he would put breath in them. Then he said unto me, prophecy unto the wind. Prophecy, son of man, and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. He prophesied to the bones. Then he prophesied to the wind. And he was prophesying that the wind would come. And breathe, oh breath. And when we read a statement like that, we cannot escape from the fact that this is symbolizing the mighty work of the Spirit of God. The wind of the Spirit comes with quickening power and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and the breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. Only God could do that. And only God could do what took a place here in Ephesus. And so the apostle is able to write, you, uh, you Ephesians, you idolaters, you immoral men and women sunk in depravity and in wickedness, in ignorance of God, alienated from God, strangers to the grace of God, you hath he quickened. He did something for you 
that no one else could possibly do. I couldn't do it. Uh, Paul doesn't say, remember, I came and I quickened you. I preached to you. I spent three years with you. I quickened you by what I said. No, he says, it was the work of God. He quickened you because you were dead in trespasses and in sins. Now, what we need to do, what we need to understand is this. What is meant by them being dead? What does that really mean? Because we can talk about it, because we learn it, and we learn our Calvinistic theology, and we consider ourselves spiritually dead before a work of grace is wrought in the soul, and we say, well, we know we're dead because we can do nothing. We can't do anything to save ourselves. We can't make any contribution to our own salvation. It's by grace we're saved. And generally speaking, when people talk about being dead, what they mean really is this, they're talking about inability. Inability to do anything to contribute to our own salvation. And it is that that is generally speaking concentrated upon. Helplessness, hopelessness, inability. We're so depraved that we can do nothing. And that's what it means to be dead. But that's not what it means. That is but a factor in the reality of spiritual deadness. And for, for the sake particularly of the younger members... We try to explain it. When did Adam die? When did the human race die in Adam and with Adam? Paul tells the Romans, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Now then, what does Paul say here to these Ephesians? He reminds them, you with the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The children of disobedience. Who disobeyed? Adam disobeyed. And all his children since then are the children of disobedience. Adam bore the likeness of God, but when a son was born, he was born in the likeness of Adam. And so Paul says, you are the children of disobedience. You are the children and you result from disobedience being dead, dead in trespasses and in sins. You have inherited 
this condition, dead and trespasses and in sins. Now then, what happened when Adam disobeyed? God had said, you disobey me, you eat the forbidden fruit, you die. And Adam died, or as it says, uh, in dying, he died. In dying, he died. He didn't just die physically. He was still alive physically. But he died. How did he die? He became separated from God. That's what this death really is. It's separation from God. And when we begin to concentrate too much on one aspect, or one fruit, as it were, one consequence of deadness, which is inability, that is a consequence of the death. But what is the death itself? What is the deadness itself? It is separation from God. Go over to the chapter 4 of Ephesians and verse 17. This is what Paul writes to these Ephesians. Chapter 4, verse 17. This, I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God. Why are they dead? The understanding is darkened, being alienated from the life of God. That's why they're dead. They're alienated. They are separated from the life which is in God. And Adam died because the relationship between him and God as creator was severed. And you see the evidence when in previously the experience of Adam God came and walked with him in the cool of the day. And what does Adam do when he's disobeyed God? He hid himself among the trees of the garden. And what did he tell God? I was afraid. I heard God's voice. I was afraid, so I hid myself. He was now alienated from God. You see, he had life when he was in fellowship with God. But he lost communion with God and he became spiritually dead. And if only we could really grasp that and really understand that's what spiritual death really means. Alienation from separation from God. And these people in Ephesus, they were alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. 
And you can see the kind of deadness it is. They're dead and they don't know it. They're even ignorant of their condition. And that's what Paul is talking about. They don't understand that they are actually alienated from God. And thus they cannot even possess life. But you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. And you know some people, they will torment themselves. They sit under the preaching of the gospel and they will wring their hands in despair. Ah, well, I'm dead. I'm so dead. I can't think right. I'm so dead. I can't do anything. I'm so dead that I can't even reach out a hand to Christ. What we need to be concerned about is this. I am alienated from God. I am a stranger to God. I am dead because I have rebelled against the God of life. Adam had life. There's no doubt about that. But he lost it. And that is why the Savior makes those wonderful statements. What does he say? I give unto my sheep, what? Eternal life. And they shall never perish. It's not like the life that Adam had. Adam had life. But he lost it because he could lose it. But whenever Jesus speaks to his poor people (coughs) and they have no confidence (coughs) in themselves, he doesn't say, I will give you the life that Adam had. And then you might lose it if you disobey. You could perish. You could end up losing it. No, he says, I give unto my sheep eternal life. And they shall never perish. It will be impossible for them to perish. And this is the life that Paul is talking about that becomes the experience of these Ephesians. They were alienated from God by wicked works. They were strangers to God. They knew nothing of fellowship or communion with God. And the one thing they needed above everything else was not ability. What they needed was reconciliation. That's what they needed. To be reconciled to God. To be brought back into a relationship of peace with God. That's what they needed. And how many there are who don't get this truth aright and the concern of every unconverted man, woman, boy or girl is this. This is the great question that we have to ask tonight. What is my relationship to God? Am I reconciled to God? Because 
If I am reconciled to God, it's because I have life. Life has been restored through that reconciliation. Spiritual life has been restored in my soul because I've been brought back to God. Perhaps the greatest illustration of it is there in the Gospel according to Luke chapter 15 where you have the parable of the prodigal son. He leaves his father's house. He wants to forget about his father. Wants to forget about his family. Wants to forget about his household. And he goes off into the far country. And he has a grand old time to begin with. But then things changed. And when he eventually returns, a very different person to what he was when he left. What is the father saying? He's saying, kill the fatted calf and let's eat and drink and be merry and rejoice. For this my son was dead. Now he wasn't physically dead. So how was he dead? There had been a severance between him and his father. They had been separated. And the father said he was dead. He left me. He became alienated from me. He wanted nothing to do with me. But... He was dead and is alive again. How is he alive? The relationship has been restored. He's my son again. He didn't want to know me. He wanted to forget me. He wanted to remove me out of his life. That was his intention. He went away to forget about me. To sever all connection with me. But he was dead and he's alive again because the relationship has been restored. That's what the apostle is talking about to these Ephesians. There has been a blessed relationship restored between you alienated Ephesians And your God that you now know. Dead in trespasses and in sins. And here the apostle says these Ephesians have been following the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh. My, 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 what a power he has to work. Little wonder the apostle is writing to these Ephesians, praying that they might understand more and more the mighty power of God toward them. Because these Ephesians have been under a different power. They've been controlled by a different power. My, the power of sin is one thing, but the mighty power of the prince, of the power of the air. Look at what Here the apostle says, the power, uh, the prince 
of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh, the spirit that works and causes the sinner to do all kinds of things, taking control of the mind, as we shall see, controlling the actions, leading the sinner into the very cesspool of sin, to drown himself or herself in sin. The power of the prince of the air. The spirit that worketh. The spirit that works. And who are the agents that he works through? These Ephesians. They didn't know it. They didn't understand it. And they were thinking, well, we're just following nature. We're just doing what everyone else is doing. And we're just doing it because we're human beings. And we're just members of the human society. (coughs) No, Paul says, there was a controlling power and you were slaves to it. You were dead and you didn't even understand your condition. Your condition was terrible beyond description, but you didn't even know it. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians in his second epistle, there in the fourth chapter, he tells us something of the power of the prince, the prince of the power of the air, how he operates. And in verse 3 of Second Corinthians 4, Paul writes this, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. They're dead. They're lost. They're lost. And it would seem they'll never be recovered. That's how the Corinthians were. That's how the Ephesians were. So lost. Sometimes we might have the tendency to give up and say, well, they're lost. That's it. They're gone. They're lost. They're alienated like the prodigal. They've deserted the gospel. They've abandoned the means of grace. They're not interested in the things of God in the slightest, to the slightest degree. But listen to what Paul also says. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. In whom? The God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them. The devil works to blind the mind, to keep hidden out of sight the consequences of sin. To keep hidden from view the deadness and this this condition that the Ephesians were in. They are dead and they don't even know it. They don't understand it. They are lost. Like the prodigal, he's lost the day he left his father's house. He becomes lost. This my son was dead and is alive again. 
He was lost. Seemed he'll never return. He's gone. He's lost. But here he is. He's been found. The power of God to search out the prodigal in the far country and bring him back home again and bring about a reconciliation. Oh, the power of God in these, the lives of these Ephesians. And here Paul says to the Corinthians, the God of this world has a power, a very real power to blind. He blinds. How different it was in the case of Moses. When Moses left Egypt and forsook the palace, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. We have this tendency to think of sin as being something so ugly, so heinous, so awful, so hellish. But sin does have pleasure momentarily, temporarily. But to see the devil works to keep these things out of sight, to blind the mind, to keep the, the, the light of the gospel from shining in. When we come here on a Sabbath evening or on any other occasion and we concentrate our minds or we seek to do around the gospel truth, as I've often said, the devil is busy and he's working to blind, to take the mind away from the truth. And how often perhaps you young people sometimes know you're sitting here and you're listening with one ear to the gospel but the mind is somewhere else because the devil is blinding. He keeps out of sight reality. He doesn't want us to know our state. He doesn't want us to know our condition. There in the experience again of the prodigal. There he was. He's alienated from the father's house. He's dead. He's lost. His condition is truly terrible. Looks pretty hopeless. But then this is one of the things that we read about him. When he's lost everything. He's lost his money. He's lost his friends. And it seems he's lost his reputation. He's lost everything. There's nothing left. And here's the way he describes his condition. I perish. I perish. That's me. There's no hope for me now. I perish. And when did he say this? Verse 17 of Luke 15. He was at the swine trough and he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat and no man gave to him. Nobody cared about his soul. Nobody was interested in his soul. 
Makes no difference to them. They carry on with life as normal. He's just a stranger. He's abandoned his father's house. Why should anybody be interested in him? He's brought it all on himself. Isn't that what people would say? Well, the prodigal, doesn't he deserve it all? And he did. He deserved it all. He brought it all on himself. with self-inflicted misery. Because of the choice he made, because of his alienation from his father's house, he's now lost. And this is what he concludes, I perish. I perish. He couldn't see any hope. It was a dark, dark scene, hopeless, useless. But when he said this, something had happened. Verse 17, no man gave unto him, and when he came to himself. We don't know all the distance he traveled into the far country. But before he came to his father and before he came to his father's house, came to himself. And he saw himself very differently to what he'd ever seen before. Oh, and he's setting off. He saw himself full of life. He saw himself as a wealthy young man. He saw himself as a pleasure-seeking young man. He saw himself as having the world at his feet. He saw all this, but he never saw himself as he really was. He never saw himself as the waster that he was. He never saw himself as the sinner he was, but he came to himself. What a sight he got. And all he could say as he looked at himself as this, I perish. That's all he could conclude. I perish. And then this is what he says, I will arise and go to my father. I will arise and go to my father. I left him. I forsook him. I despised him. I abandoned him. I had no use for him. There was an elder brother and he was speaking of the service that he rendered rendered to his father. The younger son was not intending he was going to render any service. He was going to live a life to please himself. Every action, every deed, every thought was self-centered. All about me. Pleasing me. Self. Now I perish. And I will say to my father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Make me. Make me something. Make me as one of thy hired servants. When we come to an end of ourselves and we're conscious we're perishing, we have to look to some outside power to make us something that we were not. 
And that's what here the prodigal is saying. Make me. Give me all that my goods that fall to me. I'm taking off. And the father divided the inheritance with them. But now he comes back. Make me. And that's what you see. The alienated sinner has to come to God. Make me. Because I, I perish. I'm a perishing sinner. I'm a lost sinner. I'm a helpless sinner. I'm a hopeless sinner. I want to be restored to fellowship with God. Make me. Bring me back into fellowship. Make me thine own. Make me a son. Make me a daughter. Take me and adopt me. Bring me into thy family. That's what life is. Life is not a feeling. That's what some think. Well, I'm not feeling right. I don't feel I've grace. I don't feel I'm saved. I don't feel I've faith. And they spend so much time trying to analyze their feelings. Grace is not feelings. This is what the apostle says to these Ephesians. God who is rich in mercy. That's where we have to start with the mercy of God and his great love wherewith he loved us when we were dead. What kind of love is that? A love for those that are dead because they're alienated. And he wants them back. And he wants to restore them. His great love. You see, there's the prodigal. He's in the far country. He's out of sight. But the father can't stop loving him. He wants him back, and he's watching for him. And when he saw him a great way off, he ran to meet him, to embrace him, to bring him home, to make him his son again. And that's what happened here in Ephesus. You hath he quickened. Where does the quickening start? And the understanding. Quickening the understanding. To understand I'm alienated from God. I must be recovered. I must be reconciled to God. He must have sufficient mercy. He must have such abundant grace. He must have such incomprehensible love that he will take me as the rebellious, wayward, self-seeking, self-centered sinner that I am, the prodigal that I am. He must have Sufficient grace, sufficient love, sufficient mercy that he'd take me to himself. That's what we need. If you ask the prodigal what his feelings were, was that going to move the heart of the father? No. 
wasn't depending on the prodigal how he felt. I'm perishing, that's how I feel. But the father's love was going out to restore him and bring him back. That's what life is. That's what spiritual life in the soul is. It is union and communion with God through Jesus Christ. Christ died for the ungodly that he might reconcile them to God and God be reconciled to them. And what does Paul say? This is where God commends his love. In that when we were without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He made an atonement for sin to remove it so that there would be peace. There would no, bar- no barriers remaining. And God and the sinner come together in Christ. Uh, here we see, as I've already mentioned, This glorious trinity, mercy, love, grace. A trinity of compassion, of mercy, of grace, of the love of God. And what did Paul say? He was persuaded. Nothing, nothing could separate him from the love of God which was in Christ Jesus, nothing. It's interesting, I was reading uh, of the uh, Scottish uh, preacher, Reverend Harry Arnside of the last century, was a minister for years in Chicago. On one occasion, he was traveling on a train in California. And as he was sitting there, this lady came into the carriage and she was all dressed in red and she had beads hanging over her face and so on and great looked earrings and that she was uh, what we uh, call nowadays or at least I think we do it was so when I was younger a fortune teller and she came in and she uh, said How do you do, gentlemen? And then she asked him, you like me tell your fortune? And he said, can you actually tell me my fortune? Oh, yes, gentlemen, I can do that. I'm very good at it. You just pass silver over my hand and I will tell you your past your present, and your future. And he said, well, you know, I'm a Scotsman. And I don't like to pay for something unless it's value. You can really tell me my past, my present, my future. Oh, yes, well, certainly, I'm really good at it. And then he said, well... I have a little book here in my pocket and he pulled out his New Testament. And he could see that she wasn't very, she wasn't very happy about that, but he said, and this little book, 
I have my past, my present, and my future all told to me. And she was about to leave then because she didn't want to get engaged in the conversation. And he said, but hold on, I'll tell you my past. You had the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's my past. But then he says, I'll tell you what my present is. By grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. And she was saying, I've had enough, gentleman, I'm away. And he took her by the arm and he held on, but I have more to tell you. And she tried to get away and he says, I'm going to tell you about my future And he said that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And she pulled herself away and he heard her going out of the the carriage and a long saying, took wrong man, took wrong man. Because you see, she didn't appreciate The real biblical truth that God knows her past and he knows her present, but he knows the future. And here's Paul telling these Ephesians that had no future. They had a past, all right. And the past would have destroyed them and they would have perished because of what they were. But he brought them to life. He quickened them by bringing them back into a blessed relationship with God. Verse 12 of Ephesians 2, uh, he says that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a case they were. But oh, the mercy, the love, the grace of God. Instead of perhaps thinking of what we're not, think of what God is. Instead of concentrating upon what we can't do, we ought to concentrate upon what he does and what he can do and concentrate Upon his mercy, his love, his grace. What a trinity of blessing. And that's what these Ephesians had. And they had life as they were brought into fellowship with God. And Jesus Christ was the source of it, giving unto these Ephesians eternal life. And they would never perish. The poor prodigal says, I perish. The father says, no, you won't, because I love you. And you won't because I have grace in my heart. And you won't perish because I'm a merciful father and you're still my son. May God bless his word. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, How we have reason to acknowledge the mercy we cannot even understand, the depths of it, the width of it, the height of it. Uh, The love of God that passeth all understanding. 
the grace of God that we're so utterly undeserving of. Open the understanding of every one of thy dear people here that they might appreciate the mercy and the love and the grace that they have experienced. And for those who are still out of Christ, may they understand what their deadness really means. And may they desire indeed to be brought nigh unto God through Jesus Christ. Bless thy truth and pardon us now. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen.